0: What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks.
1: This is the Seattle.
2: Supplemental 11. The Year 1817. Welcome back for a special bonus episode of The Siecla, in which we finally dip our toes into the single most famous cultural artifact about post Napoleonic France, Les Miserables. This is a bonus episode, so we're not going to be diving too deeply in. Instead, this episode is a verbatim recording of one of the most singular chapters in Victor Hugo's book, The Year 1817. If you're not familiar, this is a chapter in which Hugo sets the scene for some early events in his story by going through a long list—too long, if we're being perfectly fair—of news events that happened in that titular year. Think of it as a 19th-century prose version of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, but about a single year instead of half a century. Even Hugo admits that by the 1860s, when he published Les Miserables, history has forgotten almost all these peculiarities. By the 21st century, things have only gotten more obscure. Modern-day translator Norman Denny, who abridged this chapter in his edition of the book, writes in justification that, one has the impression that Hugo did it by skimming through the newspaper headlines, and notes as an aside that, not infrequently, Hugo got his facts wrong. But I was struck reading through this chapter at how many of these obscure references I actually understood from a few years of reading about the period. Not all of them, to be sure, but a lot and you might be surprised at how much you understand just from following along with the siecle. How many of you, before starting the show, would have understood a reference to how Monsieur de Caz prevailed, or to the Abbé Grégoire being damned in royalist circles, or to the Duke de Berry being stalked by Louvel? And other elements mentioned here, like the unfortunate ship the Medusa, the up-and-coming theologian Lemonet, or the semi-obscure thinker Saint-Simon, are going to pop up in future episodes. So don't worry if some of the blizzard of people and events you're about to hear seems confusing or overwhelming. That's partially the point, as Hugo admits near the end of this passage. Instead, focus on what you do know. I won't be interrupting my narration with explanations, but if you want to learn more, visit the transcript of this episode at thesiekla.com supplemental 11, where I've added some annotations, pictures, and Wikipedia links. I'll also add... If you've been meaning to read Les Miserables, but haven't gotten around to it, then you don't need to worry. This episode won't spoil any plot developments in the book for you. Additionally, I'll note that the text of this chapter contains an outdated term for Inuit people that some people consider offensive. The text I'll be reading from today comes largely from the 1862 English translation by Charles Wilbur. This is not my favorite Les Miserables translation, but it is my favorite translation that's in the public domain. In cases where Wilbur's language was too archaic or confusing, I've substituted some phrases from two other versions, the 1887 translation by Isabella Hapgood, and the 2013 edition by Christine Donaher. In the online transcript, I indicate via brackets and a symbol whenever a phrase comes from either Hapgood or Donaher. For example, the opening line in Wilbur refers to Louis XVIII doing something, quote, with a certain royal assumation. The choice of royal assurance found in Hapgood is clearer to modern ears. I've made small changes like that throughout, along with some minor updates to punctuation and spelling. Without further ado, here is Les Miserables, Volume 1, Part 3, Chapter 1. The year 1817 was that which Louis XVIII, with a certain royal assurance not devoid of stateliness, styled the 22nd year of his reign. It was the year when Monsieur Brugier de Sorson was famous. All the hairdresser shops, hoping that the royal bird style of powdered wig would make a comeback, were painted blue with the fleur-de-lis. It was the honest time when Comte Lynch sat every Sunday as the churchwarden on the official bench at Saint-Germain-des-Prés, in the dress of a peer of France, with his red ribbon and long nose, and that majesty peculiar to a man who has done a brilliant deed. The brilliant deed committed by Monsieur Lynch was that, being mayor of Bordeaux on the 12th of March, 1814, he had surrendered the city a little too soon to the Duc d'Angoulême, hence his peerage. In 1817, it was the fashion to swallow up little boys from four to six years old in great Morocco leather caps with ears, strongly resembling Eskimo headwear. The French army was dressed in white after the Austrian style. Regiments were called legions, and wore, instead of numbers, the names of the departments. Napoleon was at St. Helena, and as England would not give him green cloth, had had his old coats turned. In 1817, Pellegrini sang, Mademoiselle Bugatini danced, Potier reigned. Audrey was not yet in existence. Madame Saki succeeded to Forioso. There were Prussians still in France. Monsieur de Lalot was a personage. Legitimacy had just asserted itself by cutting off the fist, and then the head, of Planier, Carbonot, and Tolerant. Prince Talleyrand, the Grand Chamberlain, and Abbé Louis, the designated Minister of Finance, looked each other in the face, laughing like two soothsayers. Both had celebrated the Mass of the Federation in the Champs-de-Mars on the 14th of July, 1790. Talleyrand had said it as bishop. Louis had served him as deacon. In 1817, in the crosswalks to the same Champ de mars were seen huge wooden cylinders painted blue with traces of eagles and bees that had lost their gilding, lying in the rain and rotting in the grass. These were the columns which, two years before, had supported the emperor's platform in the Champ de May. They were blackened here and there from the bivouac fires of the Austrians in barracks near the Gross-Cayonne district. Two or three of these columns had disappeared in the fires of these bivouacs, and had warmed the huge hands of the imperial troops. The Champ de May was remarkable from the fact of having been held in the month of June and on the Champ de Mars. In the year 1817, two things were popular the touquet edition of Voltaire and charter engraved snuff boxes. The latest Parisian sensation was the crime of Dauton, who had thrown his brother's head into the fountain of the Marché aux Fleurs. They had begun to feel anxious at the naval ministry on account of the lack of news from that fatal frigate, the Medusa, which was to cover Charmeray with shame and Gary Cole with glory. Colonel Seves went to Egypt, there to become Suleyman Pasha. The Palais des Termes in Rue de la Harpe was turned into a cooper's shop. On the platform of the octagonal tower of the Hôtel de Cluny, the little board shed was still to be seen, which had served as observatory to Messier the astronomer of the navy under Louis Sixteenth, The Duchesse de Duras read to three or four friends in her boudoir, furnished in sky-blue satin, the manuscript of Urica. The ends were erased from the Louvre. The Bridge of Austerlitz abdicated its name and became the Bridge of the Jardin du Roi, an enigma which disguised at once the Bridge of Austerlitz and the Jardin des Plantes. Louis Eighteenth absently annotating Horace with his fingernail while thinking about heroes that had become emperors and shoemakers that had become Dauphin, had two cares, Napoleon and Maturin-Bruneau. The French Academy gave as a prize theme the happiness which study procures. Monsieur Bellard was professionally eloquent. In his shadow was seen taking root the future advocate general, de Broa, destined to be lampooned by Paul-Louis Courier. There was a counterfeit Chateaubriand called Marchanguil, as there was later to be a counterfeit Marchanguil called Darlancourt. Claire Dalbe and Malek Adel were masterpieces. Madame Cotin was declared the first writer of the age. The institute struck from its list the academician Napoleon Bonaparte. A royal ordinance established a naval school at Angoulême, for with the Duke d'Angoulême being Grand Admiral... Obviously, the city of Angoulême was entitled as a matter of course to all the distinctions of a seaport. Otherwise, the monarchic principle would have been undermined. In the Council of Ministers, the question was agitated whether the pictures, representing acrobats, which spiced the placards of Franconi and drew together throngs of street urchins, should be tolerated. Monsieur Payer, the author of L'Agnès, an honest man with square jaws and a wart on his cheek, Directed the small select concerts of the Marchioness de Sassanay, Rue de la Ville-l'Évêque. All the young girls sang L'Ermite de Sainte-Avel, words by Aimon Giraud.
0: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures
2: The Nain Jaune was transformed into the Miroir. The Café L'Amblin stood out for the Emperor, in opposition to the Café Valois, which was in favor of the Bourbons. A marriage had just been made with a Sicilian princess for the Duke de Berry, who was already watched from the shadows by Louvel. Madame de Stael had been dead a year. Mademoiselle Mars was hissed by the Royal Guard. The great newspapers were all lightweight. Their format was small, but they had great freedom of expression. The constitutionnel was constitutional. La Minerve called Chateaubriand, Chateaubriand. That tea excited great laughter among the citizens at the expense of the great writer. In purchase newspapers, prostituted journalists insulted the outlaws of 1815. David no longer had talent. Arnaud no longer had ability. Carnot no longer had integrity. Soult had never gained a victory. It is true that Napoleon had lost his military genius. Everybody knows that letters sent through the post to an exile rarely reached their destination, the police making it a religious duty to intercept them. This fact is by no means a new one. Descartes complained of it in his banishment. Now, David having shown some feeling in a Belgian journal at not receiving the letters addressed to him, this seemed ludicrous to the royalist papers, who seized the occasion to ridicule the exile. Whether one said regicides or voters, enemies or allies, Napoleon or Buonaparte, separated two men more than an abyss. All people of common sense agreed that the era of revolutions had been forever closed by King Louis XVIII, surnamed the immortal author of the Charter. At the platform of the Pont Neuf, the word "Redivivus" was carved on the pedestal which awaited the statue of Henry IV. Monsieur Piet, at Rue Thérèse, number 4, was sketching the plan of his cabal to consolidate the monarchy. The leaders of the right said, at moments of crisis, We must write to Bacol. Messieurs Canuel, O'Mahony, and de Chape were devising, not without the approval of Monsieur, what was afterwards to become the Riverside Conspiracy. The Black Pin had a conspiracy of its own. De La Verderie held interviews with Trogoff. Monsieur de Caz, a mind in some degree liberal, prevailed. Chateaubriand, standing every morning at his window in the Rue Saint-Dominique, number twenty seven, in stocking pantaloons and slippers, his grey hair covered with a madras handkerchief, a mirror before his eyes, and a complete case of dental instruments opened before him, cleaned his teeth, which were excellent, while dictating the monarchy according to the charter to Monsieur Pilorge, his secretary. The critics in authority preferred Lafon to Talma Monsieur de Félettes signed himself A. Monsieur Hoffman signed himself Z. Charles Nodier was writing Thérèse Aubert. Divorce was abolished. The lycées called themselves colleges. The students, decorated on the collar with a gold fleur-de-lis, pummeled each other over the King of Rome. The secret police of the palace denounced to Her Royal Highness, Madame, the portrait of the Duc d'Orléans, which was everywhere to be seen, and which looked better in the uniform of the Colonel-General of Hussars than the Duc de Berry in the uniform of the Colonel-General of Dragoons. A serious matter. The city of Paris regilded the Dome of the Invalides at its expense. Serious men asked each other what Monsieur de Trincalogue would do in such or such a case. Monsieur Clausel de Montal differed on sundry points from Monsieur Clausel de Couserg. Monsieur de Salaberry... Was not satisfied. Comedy writer Picard, of the academy to which comedy writer Moliere could not belong, had Les Deux Philibert played at the Odeon, on the pediment of which the removal of the letters still permitted the inscription to be read distinctly Theatre of the Empress. People took sides for or against Cugnet de Montarlot. Favier was seditious. Bavou was revolutionary. The bookseller Pellissier published an edition of Voltaire under the title Works by Voltaire of the French Academy. That will attract buyers, said the ingenious editor. The general opinion was that Monsieur Charles Loison would be the genius of the age. Envy was beginning to nibble at him, a sign of glory, and the line was made about him Even when Loison flies, you can tell he has feet. Cardinal Fesch refusing to resign, Monsieur de Pin. Archbishop of Amazie, administered the Diocese of Lyon. The quarrel of the Valley of Daps commenced between France and Switzerland, sparked by a report from Captain, afterwards General, Dufour. Saint-Simon, unknown, was building up his sublime dream. There was a celebrated Fourier in the Academy of Sciences, whom posterity has forgotten, and an obscure Fourier in some unknown garret who the future will remember. Lord Byron, was beginning to dawn. A note to a poem of Millevoy introduced him to France as a certain Lord Baron. David d'Angers was demonstrating his skill at working in marble. The Abbé Caron spoke with praise, in a small party of seminarists in the cul-de-sac of the Fouyantines, of an unknown priest, Félicité Robert by name, who was afterwards Lamennais. A thing which smoked and clacked on the Seine, making the noise of a swimming dog, went and came beneath the windows of the Tuileries, from the Pont Royal to the Pont Louis XV. It was a piece of mechanism of no great value, a sort of toy, the daydream of a visionary, a utopia, a steamboat. The Parisians looked upon the useless thing with indifference. Monsieur Vaublanc, wholesale reformer of the Institute by royal ordinance and distinguished creator of several academicians, after having made them, could not make himself one. The Faubourg Saint-Germain and the Pavillon de Marsan wanted Monsieur de Laveau for prefect of police, on account of his piety. Dupuytrin and Recamier quarreled in the amphitheater of the École de Médecine and shook their fists in each other's faces over the divinity of Christ. Cuvier, with one eye on the book of Genesis and the other on nature, was endeavoring to please religious reactionaries by reconciling fossils with biblical texts, and making the Mastodons support Moses. Monsieur François de Neufchateau, the praiseworthy cultivator of the memory of Parmentier, was making earnest efforts to have Pomme de Terre pronounced Parmentier without success. Abbé Grégoire, ex-bishop, ex-member of the National Convention, and ex-senator, had been downgraded to infamous Grégoire in royalist polemics. The expression which we have just employed, downgraded, was denounced as a neologism by Monsieur Royer Collard. Under the third arch of the Pont d'Iena, you could still distinguish by its whiteness the new stone used to fill the hole for explosives that Blucher had made two years earlier to blow up the bridge. Justice summoned to her bar a man who said aloud, Oh, for the days when I used to see Bonaparte and Talma entering the Bal Sauvage arm-in-arm. Seditious language. Six months' imprisonment. Traitors showed themselves stripped even of hypocrisy. Men who had gone over to the enemy on the eve of a battle made no concealment of their bribes, and shamelessly walked abroad in daylight with their cynically acquired riches and honors. Deserters of Ligny and bras, in the brazenness of their purchased shame, exposed the nakedness of their devotion to monarchy, forgetting the commonest requirements of public decency. Such was the confused mass of events that floated pell-mell on the surface of the year 1817, and is now forgotten. History neglects almost all these peculiarities, nor can it do otherwise. It is under the dominion of infinity. Nevertheless, these details, which are wrongly called little, there are neither little facts in humanity nor little leaves in vegetation, are useful. The features of the years make up the face of the century. Thank you for bearing with Victor Hugo and I today. If you're curious about any or all, of the flurry of references here, remember that you can visit the slash supplemental11. That's T-H-E-S-I-E-C-L-E dot com to view an annotated transcript of this episode. But I hope you surprised yourself by how many references you understood without my footnotes. In the meantime, I'm headed back to work on episode 28, Charles in Charge.
1: Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis, introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy.